going further and higher Shakespeare Martineau's podcast in which we discuss topical or indeed long-running themes in higher and further education. My name's Smita Jamdar and I'm partner and head of education at Shakespeare Martineau. In today's episode we're going to be considering what college and university governance can learn from other sectors and I'm delighted to be joined today by members of the firm's governance forum who I'm going to ask to introduce themselves starting with Rachel. Hi, I'm Rachel Gwynn, Partner and Head of Social Housing, and I advise um, housing associations on governance and corporate matters. Thanks, Rachel. Maddie. Hello, I'm Maddie Cordes. I'm a Company Secretarial Director in the COSEC and Governance team, and I work uh, mainly in the corporate sector with smaller listed PLCs and family businesses. Thank you, Maddie. Catherine? Hi everyone, I'm Catherine Rostomji. I'm a partner and head of charities, um, advising charities primarily on governance and constitutional issues, but also not-for-profit companies and social enterprises. Thanks, Catherine. And a regular and old friend of the podcast, Joanna Forbes. Hello, I'm Joanna Forbes. I'm a legal director and member of the education team. So with SMITA, we advise universities and colleges on all aspects of governance, whether that's interpretation of their governing instruments or you know, specific issues, you know, conflicts of interest or drafting some sort of terms of reference for a committee, that sort of thing. So the full range of governance issues as they apply in the education sector. Thanks, Joanna. Um, so the first challenge I wanted to talk to you all today about um, is about recruiting a diverse board, but which also has all the skills that a board um, needs. And I suppose there's a few questions uh, that I'll put out there and hopefully uh, you'll all have some views on. So the first I suppose I'd be interested in hearing is how well your sectors, those of you who generally act in sectors that aren't the education sector, how well do they do in recruiting more diverse boards? And I think I'm quite interested there in class diversity as well as the classic protected characteristics, age, race, uh, gender, etc. And does it really matter uh, for the sectors that you're in. So I don't know, Catherine, do you want to start sort of with a broad overview of the charity sector then? Sure. Um, I think the charity sector for a long time has had a bad press around diversity. Uh, the phrase pale, male and stale uh, is regularly banded around. Um, and not to be unkind, I think, to those uh, men who have volunteered their time and given it freely to charities. We're not saying they've done a bad job, but there is much more of a focus now around diversity of thought. Um, I think there was a very very simplistic focus on the protected characteristics and then working out actually that doesn't give you a diverse board Absolutely. it doesn't yeah. equal diversity and now um, the issue is more about being welcoming to those from different backgrounds different skills and expertise whether it's stakeholders whether it's those with an interest in what the charity does and welcoming them as equals not as a kind of a token gesture on the board and and giving them as much of an equal voice as everybody else on that board. Yeah, I think that's such a good way of looking at it, because this is about bringing a diversity of thinking that improves the quality of decision making rather than just having different people around the table, but all thinking from pretty much the, the same background. Rachel, I'm going to come to you in a minute about stakeholder voice, because I think that's a really interesting um, part of that diversity of perspective. But um, Joe, maybe you could sort of say a little bit about how we think the education sector is dealing with diversity on both those levels so representation but also the diversity of thinking yeah i mean i think it's it's a it's again it's a work in progress i think when we when we look at governance in colleges and universities i think that you know that in terms of for example gender balance that's usually pretty um 
um, equal these days. Um, age is still an issue, I would say, you know, often. And, and there's a difficulty there, isn't there? Because you do want people with experience in in the working environment, in, in business, in whatever they're bringing to that. So, you know, you do need people with a bit of age. <laughs> um, in terms of stakeholders, I mean, student governors are interesting because all colleges and universities have at least one. Um, and when I've been a governor myself, we found that actually we've had to provide quite a lot of support to the student governor to bring them up to speed, not least because they only tend to get one year on the board. Yeah. You know? And actually that's quite a useful exercise. Um, the clerk or the secretary can support them and, and provide them with some extra training that can also be rolled out to other you know, governors who may be unfamiliar with how the board works and, and those sorts of processes. I mean, we, we know of an apprenticeship scheme in, in higher education governance where younger people in particular from diverse backgrounds are in effect mentored and come in as a shadow governor or as an apprentice governor to learn from the whole board about how that how that works so that they can then step in and, and play a, a fully formed part, you know, despite their age and, and background. So I think, you know, that there are schemes underway yeah. but it's certainly not a finished product at all no no and Rachel I wanted to um, ask you about stakeholder representation because obviously in social housing I'm assuming that the tenant voice is is quite an important one yeah it's really interesting actually in housing because historically um, it was always the case through a regulatory function that you had to have um, stakeholder voices on your board so um, generally speaking boards were split into three so you had a third tenants a third local authority and a third independence and it's only been in the last few years that regulatory function has been removed um, boards are moving to to what they call kind of a more professional commercialization but what housing sector has been quite keen to do is retain that tenant voice um, and other stakeholder voices, because it isn't just about, it's about the wider community and housing as well, um, but make sure the right level of training is there for them yeah. and that they're there as board members, bringing their experience um, and their, their personality, but not losing the fact that they're actually running quite quite large businesses at the end of the day. Yeah, that, that I think that's a very, really sort of similar issue there about how you capture that really important student perspective within the context of a board that's got a huge range of responsibilities. Maddie, you wanted to come in. Yeah, just a couple of points really from the corporate sector and what I'm seeing. Um, diversity is definitely getting better. I think it's up to organisations to bring up the um, a diverse um, collection of employees who can potentially join the board at some point and um, so internally because a lot of the non-executives will be brought forward by a headhunter but they will actually um, have worked in competing organizations or you know the same sector organizations so it has to start much earlier than um, a headhunter trying to find people it's you know they've got to think about succession within organizations um, but headhunters have signed up to various codes to yeah. make sure that at that level when they're bringing non-executive directors onto the board they're looking when they're doing their due diligence and they're sort of sifting through applications right at the beginning of the process in in looking for diverse voices but Catherine's point about diversity of thinking um, I agree with uh, Joanna as well so yes I think that headhunter can really help um, with helping with diverse boards by actually um, 
using their code and adhering to the codes that they've, they've signed up to, to look for a diverse collection of non-executive directors at the time for recruitment. And the last point I was going to make was on diversity of thinking, which Catherine and Joe have both mentioned. The company secretary and indeed the chair of any of these boards um, can help very much in the meetings once we've got those people um, in, into the boardroom um, to actually be able to contribute and have a voice. Yeah, agreed, agreed, absolutely. Um, I want to then to move on to, I suppose, a, a theme that's been emerging, particularly in higher education regulation, um, less so yet in further, but I think it, it's, it's important in further too. And this is the degree of oversight that governing boards are expected to have over the academic affairs of the organisation. So they're not expected to run the academic side of the organisation, but they are expected to be satisfied that it is being run properly. Uh, and that it's robust and they're, they're expected to receive um, assurance of it. And the issue I think for the board sometimes is that they may not have anyone on there who has the skills and the expertise to really test the assurances they're receiving. So they feel quite, uh, you, you know, blindsided by this a little bit. Um, I mean, obviously this is being addressed and, and many more are trying to, um, for example, bring on somebody who's got some higher education expertise. And so I guess uh, my, my question really for all of you was how important do you think that, it's that it is for the non-execs in the, the sort of clients you work for to have some experience of the core business of the organisation? And do you think that a board can effectively test and challenge what executives are telling them without that level of, of experience and insight? Um, yes, so um, absolutely. I mean, in the financial crisis, um, there was a lot of criticism of non-executives who, uh, and boards in, in, in the whole, who didn't have that core experience. So for instance, in the financial sector, especially with the conglomerates that didn't just do banking, but did lots of other financial services, they would actually um, bring in, you know, have people on the board who might have experience in one aspect, but potentially not in banking itself. Um, and also in risk. So and it really depended on the culture of the organization. So some organizations encouraged traders to, to take higher risk and they didn't have a very strong risk function. So they weren't getting the assurance and non-executives on the board from those risk uh, functions. So um, I think in one aspect is really important to look at is the skills matrix. And it isn't enough to say, you know, the, experience in property or be experienced in financial services but to be much more specific in recruiting and looking at the very specific experience again headhunters can help in the corporate sector yeah absolutely um joanna i think skills matrix is obviously something we look at every time we do a governance effectiveness review and i don't know my my sort of sense is that boards are increasingly looking for quite specific skills rather than the general finance background, legal background, but, you know, is it someone who understands culture? Is it somebody who understands international um, strategy, that sort of thing? Is that something you're seeing as well, do you think? Yeah. And also, as you said right at the beginning, looking for someone that understands education. So, you know, on, on boards uh, now, it's quite common in universities, for example, for them to recruit a retired vice chancellor from, a, you know, somewhere else to come onto the board to provide that academic input. I mean, I have seen that cause a problem. Um, uh, college I was I was a member of the board and we recruited um, an assistant principal from one of the other local colleges to be on our board to provide that sort of academic input and actually it was unworkable she had to resign in the end because there's too much of a conflict 
um, particularly when the colleges were going through the area review process. There was just too much sort of uncertainty about, you know, which colleges would be less standing for her to be there. So it's, it's, it's a useful, certainly useful. I mean, if I was on a university board with the regulatory requirements imposed on me in relation to academic governance, I'd definitely be wanting some sort of academic voice on the board, but it's not without its difficulties. And then the final area that I wanted to look at today was really around this question that keeps coming up in certainly in, in higher education, feels like it's never been completely off the agenda, but never completely on the agenda either, uh, which is around paying uh, university governors and college governors um, and particularly chairs and possibly chairs of committees. Now, Joanna, I understand there's been some recent developments in further education around this. So I don't know if you want to. Yes, that's right. So the AOC has put out um, in June, I think, a document which is, is guidance on payment to governors, which, as Samita said, has been an issue in higher education, but less so in further education. But clearly it's been enough of an issue um, that the DfE has come to an arrangement with the Charity Commission that in certain cases um, of sort of urgent need, that there'll be a streamlined process for charity commission approval, because I'm sure, you know, the listeners are aware that, that you know, the charity cannot just pay all of its trustees and you need either a specific provision in your constitution or specific authorization from the charity commission. And it seems that in further education, in certain circumstances, so for example, where there's a period of significant change in the college, I don't know, so there's an undergoing a merger or, or some sort of restructuring or where the organisation is failing and they need to get in a chair urgently, that there will be a streamlined process um, uh, agreed between the DfE and the Charity Commission for approving that. So that's a positive step forward, I think, for colleges. Yeah, before I ask Catherine about the general charity sector, it does just occur to me that given the general volatility in both the higher and further education sectors, some would argue that there's never a period when you're not <laughs> undergoing some form of quite serious strategic thinking. So it'll be interesting to see how that is um, you, you know, implemented in practice. Catherine, what about the sort of wider uh, charity sector? Where are we on payments of trustees generally? Definitely two camps, and it's a bit like Marmite. Um, I think some people would say if you were able to pay trustees, you would get a better class uh, in terms of quality and commitment and time and effort um, given to the charity. And others would disagree with that entirely and say, actually, it's a fundamental principle of charity law that trustees are volunteers and they are not in it to receive any payment. And going back to the position on diversity, there was a point made that paying trustees would help um, to give us a more diverse board of trustees. And actually, the contrary is what many would believe would be the outcome, that actually you will get people from the same sort of background who will retire from working in the city and then take on a portfolio of uh, you know, commercial or rather charitable roles and be paid for that. So for me, I don't equate payment with better quality or commitment. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely one of the big unresolved questions really about it. I think for me, the other issue that sort of uh, it throws up is how does it change the relationship between the trustee and the organization that's that's paying them? Um, because of course, one of the roles of a trustee is that bringing some independence of thinking, bringing some test and some challenge and whether people would feel more reluctant to do that if uh, they are being paid and they feel under some sort of duty. Um, Rachel, what's been going on in the sort of social housing sector around payment of trustees? 
Very, really similar to, to, to what's already been outlined, actually, and they're, they're very definitely two different camps. But for those boards um, and organisations that have chosen to pay, and they are all charitable, um, so they have the same, same difficulties as we've been discussing, but they put in place very clear contractual arrangements that set out exactly why they're being paid. And it's for those services or activities that they do over and above general trustee or board member duties so it's that additional service they're putting in and they're very clear about the fact that um this isn't doesn't give them any greater say on a board doesn't give them any greater power they still have the same responsibilities for that um challenge and um, and exploring um and pushing um for further information as and when they need it um and and for the for those boards that do pay it, it seems to work reasonably well um but of course you've got a lot of, of housing boards that work equally as well um without paying um, any of their board members yeah yeah i think that's um that idea of above and beyond and what is it that you're paying for and going back to your point joanna about you know the extra work that's needed at certain points in time i think certainly in the education sector that would require much more consensus around what the base level of duties are what's the commitment time commitment how do you measure all that before you could really start identifying very easily what the additional um services are so i think that's going to be something which no doubt we'll sort of have to explore in practice and ho hopefully get start building up some case studies of what works and what doesn't so i found that a really interesting conversation i was struck by how much similarity there is and how much the sectors can learn from each other including across to the corporate sector maddie you know it's it's yeah, there are some very common right. themes here um, but also the fact that, you know, even with those themes, there are those differences which we're always going to have to find bespoke ways round. Um, so thanks very much for, for joining me and for sharing your thoughts. And thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button. If you like what you've heard, please do leave a review. Until then, it's goodbye from all of us.